Welcome to Art of the Score, the podcast that explores, demystifies and celebrates some of the greatest soundtracks of all time from the world of film, TV and video games. I'm Andrew Poxon and in each episode we'll be joined by Daniel Golding and Nicholas Buck as we check out a soundtrack we love, break down its main themes, explore what makes the score tick and hopefully impart our love of the world of soundtracks. In our previous episode, we explored the world of Vangelis's Blade Runner and got to understand the musical language that he set for the franchise, a sound palette that seems as intrinsically linked to the movie as the characters, themes and locations. So it was with great anticipation that in 2017, the world got to visit the gritty universe of Blade Runner again with Blade Runner 2049, this time with a new director in Denis Villeneuve and new composers to the franchise, Benjamin Wolfish and Hans Zimmer. In episode 26 of Art of the Score, we crack open the case again and try to discover the secrets of this exciting score. And joining me on our journey to a cyberpunk neo-noir future is composer, arranger, orchestrator, conductor, and recently promoted Tyrell Corporation middle manager. Ooh, a bit of extra coin. It's uh, Nicholas Buck. How you doing, guys? I actually get my own office in this position too. Yeah, been, been upgraded. Office. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah, nice. Um, we have some new composers finally. Well, a new composer with Benjamin Wolfish. We have looked at Hans Zimmer, and together they've created a really fascinating score that that builds on the original and um, quite a tough ask to to try and top Vangelis's original. So we'll see if they've if they've done a good job. Pretty daunting. And the third in our nerdy trio of Nexus 8 sympathisers is writer, critic, university lecturer, ABC radio host whose flawless features can only be described as synthetic and therefore his baseline needs to be tested. Okay, you ready? Uh, we're doing At the this. ABC, do they keep you in a cell? Cells. Cells. When you're not performing your duties at uni, do they keep you in a little box? Cells. Cells. Interlinked. Interlinked. What's it like to hold the hand of a podcast host you love? Interlinked. Interlinked. Did they teach you how to feel love for any other composer than John Williams? Interlinked. No, interlinked. Do you dream about being interlinked with Williams? Interlinked. Yes, interlinked. (laughs) What's it like to hold your awesome new book coming out in 2019, I guess, in your arms? Interlinked. Interlinked. Do you feel that there's a part of you that's missing? Interlinked. Interlinked. Within cells interlinked. Within cells interlinked. Why don't you say that three times? Within cells interlinked. Within cells interlinked. Within cells interlinked. Within cells interlinked. Oh, we're done. It's Constant Dan Golding. You can pick up your bonus, Dan. It's good to have you here. All, all worth it. I- <laughs> Did that work? That didn't work. No, look, it, it, it worked enough. Yeah, I'm yeah. sure, I'm sure. you know. There's a there's a, like a 15-second fast-forward bo- button on most podcast yep. apps these days. And, you know, I'm sure people will have will have made use of that if they if they <laughs> so needed. Uh, I was thinking, yes. is this the most recent score we've done on Art of the Score? You know, I think it probably is. Hmm. The newest. It is. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Well... There you go. But before we get into that, Dan, we have a regular on Art of the Score now, which is pretty exciting, mm. keeping the hip factor higher than zero. She's a composer, a musician, and a synth guru. However, she tells me, Dan, that mm. she doesn't dream of electric sheep, but a sweet, sweet, functional Yamaha CS80. It's Saya Vogel, interlinked. Interlinked. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, look, I'm, I'm not sitting in the room with you guys. I'm in my studio in Brisbane, and I'm surrounded by synthesizers. Um, so I'm not lonely, uh, but I, you know, I, I wish I was more interlinked. 
Yeah, that's true. Uh, so it's wonderful to have you again for the second episode in a row. I feel like you, you're you now a, um, well, for the third time, mm. it's, it's hardly a regular guest. Mm. You just joined the podcast. Oh, <laughs> I would love to join the podcast, but I don't know how to read music. <laughs> so I don't know. Is that a requirement? Is that a deal breaker? Podcast? Absolutely not. I don't recall an entry exam for the (laughs) podcast. That's true. (laughs) Now, of course, if listeners want to check out more of Saya's stuff, if uh, uh, having her another score is not enough to get your Saya fill, then you can head over to Saya's podcast called Hearsay, spelled H-E-A-R-S-E-J, where she interviews a whole bunch of really cool musicians. And, um, yeah, it's a really awesome podcast. Check it out. Subscribe. Rate favorably, Dan. (laughs) Don't rate negatively. (laughs) Uh, And, uh, yeah, go check it out. So, Dan, um, you want to get us started in some facts about Blade Runner 2049? Well, I mean, so they, I mean, I suppose I'm not going to repeat the history of the first film. If you're interested in that, then definitely check out our first podcast on Blade Runner. But they were talking about making a sequel for some time. And it's been, you know, one of these discussions in in pop culture for, I mean, for decades, really. Uh, But in 2011, it sort of got serious and there was a bit of rights purchasing, as there always is with these late sequels that meant that suddenly a new film was on the horizon uh, and it was sort of shopped around a little bit. Uh, Hampton Fancher, who was one of the scriptwriters for the original, came on to develop, uh, along with a few other writers, a script. Ridley Scott, who was the director of the original film, uh, always wanted to have some sort of involvement and he's a producer on this one. Uh, and they were sort of casting around for a director for a while. In the end, they found Denis Villeneuve, who I I think you couldn't really get a more perfect director uh, for this film. His other movies um, that he's really well known for, probably um, his most famous films would be um, Incendies, Prisoners, Enemy, Sicario, uh, and Arrival, of course. Oh, right, sure. His, his most well-known film probably is Arrival um, and Sicario to some degree uh, uh, prior to Blade Runner 2049. But like a lot of his films deal with similar material. Um, they're often about memory, about doubling of, of characters as well. Uh, and, you know, they're, they're kind of... The thinking cinema goers blockbuster, really. Uh, you know, <laughs> Sicario is, uh, I mean, it's such an incredible film. Uh, Incendies as well, I highly recommend if you can check it out. It's sort of about memory and intergenerational trauma in the Middle East, but it, it's really different. It's much more than that description mm. sells it out. There's certainly not films where you can kind of check your brain at the door. Yeah, you, absolutely. You, I think you need to kind of yeah bring along a bit of... Bit of uh, thinking, thinking yeah. that when you yeah, watch these it's films. True. And I mean, an arrival is a is a, you mm. know one of the best original. I mean, well, it's based on a. I think it's a short story, uh, but you know, original insofar as it's not part of a franchise. Mm. Sci-fi films in in years. Yeah, in Hollywood. I agree with that. I when I went and saw that, it was so refreshing. Yeah, um, it did what what um, sci-fi does best. Yeah which is explore the basics of what it is to be human. I mean, I, I think mm. all great sci-fi does that at the end of the day. Absolutely. Um, yeah, anyway. so it's and Yeah, so I mean, look, I think he was, he was the perfect choice. Uh, and, you know, he, of course, brought along, uh, well, the cinematographer uh, of uh, Roger Deakins, who is one of the best in the business. And it's why this film looks as you know, jaw-droppingly incredible as it does. Uh, and it's part of the aesthetic of this film, the visuals, the sound. And it had originally another composer. 
That's true. Johan Johansson, yeah. yeah. Who had worked with Denis Villeneuve on pretty much all of those films yeah. you mentioned, I think. Yeah, mm. Sicario is a great Johansson score. Yeah. It's incredibly tense. Uh, and Arrival, I love, I think, is a really, really mature work of, of film music. Yeah. yeah. And it's, look, there is, in all my research and reading, I haven't found a definitive reason why. Um, I, I sort of feel in the film score community when composers get replaced, mm. it's like a re- it's like the FBI come in. Yeah, and like no one ever seems to know why. It's always <laughs> this really kind of not talked about hush secret. Surely mm. it can only be a couple of actual reasons. Mm. Well, the closest thing I've found is that it was a mutual agreement. They just kind of both agreed that um, Johansson's style wasn't quite the right fit. Well, mm. it, that's interesting because... It's like he was fired. In, in the same year, there, uh, Johansson worked on another film called Mother! Exclamation mark. Has anybody seen Mother? No. no. That is... Oh, oh, look, let me tell you. If you've seen Mother, if you're listening to this and you've seen Mother, you know exactly what I mean. It is a ride. It mm. is a film that starts at about 10 on a scale of 10 and finishes at about 25. It's like there is no 11 involved. It's just, <laughs> it is... Is this one with um, Jennifer Lawrence? Yeah, it is. Yeah, is that Aronofsky right. film? Yeah, it is. Okay. I've it, just heard controversial things, but I haven't actually seen it. <laughs> it's uh, it's quite something. Uh, anyway, look, uh, it, Johansson wrote a score for that film and then they both sat down and watched it and said, you know what? Nah, doesn't need it. And they took it out and there was no replacement music. Um, oh, so right. you know, and that was—I think it's was the same year as Blade Runner 20, uh, 20, 2017. 20, <laughs> 2049, yeah. 2017 was the year. I, I you know, so I—it's it, almost not within, you know, it's not completely outside of the bounds of possibility that they uh, just agreed it wasn't right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think I that's kind of what happened. I wonder if he got happened. paid still. I wonder if he got paid for Mother and this one. Or I if you so. just probably, <laughs> I would have thought so. I mean, it's rare that that it's payment upon delivery. Mm, yeah. Um, normally, but maybe be it's like twenty percent, and then you know, eighty percent. Mm. I don't know. Still, probably a lot of money. <laughs> if you're a Hollywood lawyer, yeah, 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 yeah. then write in to <laughs> Art of the Score. <laughs> well, you know, they they just had all that leftover cash for Hans Zimmer. That's yeah. that's the reason. <laughs> well, I'm um, sure he's cheap. I mean, before we get to that, I I wanted to play a little example of Arrival because maybe this sort of gives you a flavour of what mm. a you know what a Blade Runner score could have sounded like um, had had Johan Johansson written it. Here it is. You know, there's there is some some Blade Runner DNA there. There's yeah. that drone note. Yep. There's the sort of strange synthy. Um, mm. It's not the same as a, a CS80 sort of sound, but it's it's a synthy sound, otherworldly, over the top. Uh, and in actual fact, uh, not that I'm saying anyone has even vaguely um, gained inspiration from the Arrival score, but you know the what we're about to discuss with with Blade mm. Runner 2049, that idea of that sort of simple melody. Yeah. Um, as it is in Arrival as well. So I wonder if, you know, there was something like that. But at the end of the day, look, my suspicion is that, you know, I'm sure they were freaking out a bit with Blade Runner, with this sequel. It's such a loved mm. franchise yeah. that I I suspect that there was a little bit of producers getting cold feet mm. 
um, or the studio getting cold feet saying, oh, this is a bit different. We actually need it to be a little more like the original. Yeah. And, mm. you know, that's the thing that's always been surprising to me about Blade Runner and the fact that a sequel even exists mm. is the first film was kind of a bomb. Oh, big time. And yeah. they kind of made a sequel and, well, look, the sequel didn't do brilliantly. It made its money back seemingly, mm. but not by a lot. Yeah, Certainly yeah. not like what they call domestically within within America. It made its money back internationally, but within the American box office, it was, you know, close to a bomb as well. And mm. it's sort of like, well, you made a sequel to a bomb and it kind of bombed. Mm. So like, what? I mean, what you like make a third one, see what happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so, it, you know, that I, the producer getting cold feet idea, I mean, it makes kind of sense, I think. Yeah. If mm. they, it could have happened. Yeah. Yeah. Who but look, knows? in the end, we ended up with Benjamin Wolfish and Hans Zimmer. Um, Zimmer, of course, needs no introduction. Mm. Um, those of you who don't know Benjamin Wolfish, he actually started life as a conductor, like a serious classical conductor in the UK, conducting the London Symphony, lots of you know orchestras over there. And from what I understand, kind of wanted to be a serious classical composer, but ended up doing some orchestrating for the great Italian composer, film composer, uh, Dario Marianelli, oh, right. you know, who, who mm. did such um, good films like uh, Atonement, Atonement yeah. Pride and Prejudice, V for Vendetta. So it was an orchestrator for him for about 10 years. Mm. And then I'm not quite sure how he just sort of did this, this fantastic transition into you know, almost mm. the alias of Hollywood now. Um, and I wouldn't say he got plucked up by Zimmer, but it certainly has done some collaborations with him on Hidden Figures yeah. and this. Mm. But I think he has a pretty pretty great voice himself. Mm. You know, his first big score was Dear Wendy and recently did doing a lot of horror films like It. Yeah. And uh, do you guys ever see A Cure for Wellness? I didn't. Creepy no. film and amazing score. <laughs> Yeah, I, I really like like his stuff. Mm-hmm. And my understanding is that Wolfish was sort of the lead compositional voice on Blade Runner 2049. Yeah, I think that's the reality of it. I mean, mm. no one has written anywhere formally that that is 100% what's happened, but there's no. so many alluding yeah. to. I mean, even the fact that for the vast majority mm. of this film's post-production life when the score was being written, Han was literally on the road um, around Hans. Han, you mean Hans? Hans, sorry, yeah, Hans. Not Solo. I know it stars yeah. Harrison Ford. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hans Solo was on the road. Uh, Hans Zimmer was on the road with his big sort of international tour, yep. um, his his live yeah. you know concert tour. So, it I is. Think, I think the best way to describe him is more like a sort of music producer. Yeah, yeah that's, that's probably that's, fair. And he's been on the record as saying that. Yeah. And I think more importantly, um, hardly any of this score is in D minor. <laughs> <laughs> hey, well, You'll need to listen to our Gladiator episode. 
to uh, get that joke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I mean, yes, Hans Zimmer, Ben uh, Wolfish, but I think we're really talking Wolfish here um, mm. for an awful lot of it. Uh, I am sure that he was sending stuff off to Hans Zimmer and, yeah. you know, sort of getting approvals and, and you know, comments and, and feedback. And, and working within the kind of um, boundaries that people expect of a, of a Hans Zimmer-style score mm, as yeah. well, you know. I mean, for someone who has such a classical and orchestral background, yeah. I mean, there's there's no acoustic instruments in this score at all. Yeah. It's just like the Vangelis. It's all synthetic. So mm. it's pretty, mm. pretty, you know, daunting task for him and I think he did a great job. Mm. Absolutely. Now, let's – shall we start at the start – yeah. Uh, once again, this score is not like a lot of the other scores that we do on Art of the Score. It doesn't have a melody for K and a melody for Deckard and a melody for etc. etc. It, it has little ideas that are then brought up, and they're more, I guess, musical signposts is one way of thinking of it, or mm. certainly mood, certainly sound design. In many ways, it does follow the DNA of the Van Gelis score. Yeah. He didn't necessarily write themes for specific characters. But, I mean, to be honest, this has just that little bit more of that. And we will go through that, and there, there are some, some obvious melodies that are connected to certain characters, but there's an awful lot of other stuff that's, that's around ideas yeah. and, and important signposting. So let's start at the start, and uh, this, is, this actually comes in very early in the film, almost within the first few seconds, and it's when you get like a little recap, for, probably for the people in the cinema who, A, can't remember what happened in the original Blade Runner, mm. and B, perhaps have never seen Blade Runner before. And the first film begins with the similar... Well, like, that's true, yeah, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. 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 So it gives you a little recap about, you know, what has happened, what a Blade Runner is and what replicants mm. are and so on. And we get these six chords played on piano as each sort of line of, of text. text comes up. We get a chord and uh, this is what it sounds like. And then we're in, we get that close-up of the a right eye, actually, importantly, mm. a right eye, because that's where the little um, serial number is on all of the replicants' eyes. Of course. And we yeah. get a close-up of that eye. And it really then, you know, broadly moves into that sort of big, we're in Blade Runner, we're home, we're back to where you remember it. But did you guys hear that effect on the piano there? Yeah. It sort of sounded like the notes are being sucked out. Mm, um, yeah. I mean, I, I sort of was talking to Nick about this and... You know, I wondered whether this theme could be be called, I guess, a, a memories theme, because mm. um, it's used a couple of times in the film, and it's uh, but only really uh, when things are being remembered. And I guess in this instance, we're remembering what happened between films, really. Yeah. Um, mm. And you get that sort of sucking out, like as if those memories are getting sort of pulled somewhere else. Mm. And I've, I've also been uh, heard it referred to as like the puzzle theme, um, and I think that's pretty apt as well as 
thinking about memories because the film is a bit of a puzzle. Yeah, sort of, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's always little changes and things. Mm. You know, I mean, Kay the whole time is really trying to work out what's what's happened with this this origin of of this child yeah. um, out there. And look, in case you can't hear these chords because they're so spread out, I'll play them a bit quicker here on the piano. Um, and, you know, we always talk about the tritone on Art of the Score. <laughs> Have a listen between chords two and three and between chords five and six, so the second last one. Um, we get these tritone leaps, which act as a little, ooh, a little surprise. And like the original Vangelis score, you know, it's they're all major chords yeah, except major chords. for the first one. Yeah, yeah they've yeah. all got a sort of oh, a, a sort of uplifting positivity about yeah. them. But the 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 gaps between them, the angles between them, are sort of ooh, they're a bit yeah, they, they they don't kind of fit together in a really harmonious pattern. No, I mean they really it's almost like a, a musical ah oh, mm. ta da that sort mm. of thing. Yeah, um, it's like a bit of information. Oh, okay, interesting. Pling. Yeah, next yeah. bit of information. Oh, please. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yep, yep. And, and it sort of moves quite far from home if it starts on C sharp. Yeah, I mean, by the time we've got to the A, I mean that's that's a fair way. But then it returns to the F sharp, which is like a fourth, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. So it's almost like Pretty that tight. final one. Yes, it's a tritone, but it sort of returns us to the a little bit home, close, a yeah. little bit, yeah. Now, of course, a little bit later on in that particular opening, it's it's twenty forty nine on the soundtrack is just mm. the the name of it. Uh, we actually get the the melody that probably appears most in this whole score, and it's a rather simple melody. This time, it's played in in C sharp, and the reason why we we don't normally talk about keys in this in this podcast, but I think it's interesting uh, the keys that they choose in this particular film. So this one's in C sharp. I think it's about the one of the few times that they presented in. C sharp, and I wonder whether it is because um, you know the the previous opening is sort of in a C sharpy sort of vein, so it, maybe it just keeps on blending. But anyway, before I talk about it too much, uh, here is the the second part where this this sort of uh, simple melody appears.
Yeah, so, I mean, we've got a lot of the elements there. If you think back to the original um, Blade Runner, where it's got that sort of drone note and you've got that sort of quite optimistic, uh, major sounding melody over the top, I guess in a way this is sort of the same. Mm. You've got the drone note. In this case, it's C sharp. Then you have the um, a major key melody over the top. It's just it's so elongated and strange, uh, but it's still within a major key, isn't it, Nick? Yeah, and again, because they are so drawn out, it's sort of hard to... When I first saw the film, it kind of took me a while to really latch onto this as the really main identifying theme. But if I play it a bit quicker, you'll, you'll hear, hear the melody. So it's pretty simple, it's a little sort of up and down motion. Yeah. Mm. And they use combinations of these notes. So often it does start in the same sort of, you know, first four notes each time. And then they sometimes just use some of the other notes from that scale. Now, we were talking about uh, Eastern influences on mm. the Van Gelis score. And this is where the first, you actually get a little Eastern influence here. Um, Nick, if you can play me the, the, I guess, the full scale, starting from C sharp, going C sharp, D, F. Um, it's like a little harmonic minor Eastern-y sound and, sounding thing. It's just that they avoid the most overtly sounding eastern parts to it. Yeah, I mean, essentially that's where it's where it's coming yeah. from. It's just that they're avoiding a couple of those notes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, look, the, the the second note, the D here, really does make it super Eastern. Yes. But without that, it still does have an Eastern feel. I know, yeah. I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. So it's just the flavour. I mean, it's not sort of, hey, we're in, you know, mm. um, we're in the desert. Um, it's just a that little hint of, you know, both Western and Eastern sort of coming together, which is yeah. what this score has always been. And yeah. also, I mean, beyond all of that as well, even just, and I'm, I know we'll talk about the synths and the orchestration later, but the way that the, the A falls away, that that third note just slowly, slightly falls. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it just you know that's that's instant Blade Runner to yeah. me. A synth with more reverb than you can possibly imagine doing a slight pitch bend. Yeah, that's Blade Runner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that, that what Dan's talking about is the la da this note la yeah. and it lands it on really the almost sort of, morphs into the G sharp. Yeah, there, yeah, 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 yeah. So anyway, it, this melody comes up time and time again in this film, and and Nick talked about the name of the puzzle theme. And I really see this as puzzle moments, that whenever this this theme comes in, it's like another piece of the plot. It's almost like a little um, signifier of, hey, watch what's happening here. Yeah. This is an important moment in yeah. the film. <laughs> I have also heard Wolfish refer to this specific one as, as the soul theme and like those opening oh, chords we played. Them being, uh, you know, almost like a Rubik's cube. You know, oh, yeah, think yeah, about, yeah. you know, Rubik's cube has six sides. There's six mm. chords there, um, and this being more the soul theme and kind of the film is like the search for this um, replicant that mm. is actually turned sort of almost human in some way. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah, the, yeah. The search for its soul. Yeah. So I think it's a good way of thinking about it, and it, re it really becomes the the main identifying theme of the film. So early in the film. We have Kay turning up to Sapper. What's his last name? Sapper uh, Morton. Sapper Morton. Sapper Morton. Yeah. yeah. And there is that sort of first moment where he discovers that mm. something is buried under yeah. the tree. And this is really the first moment that we, you know, the the plot kicks off. Really, um, mm. there's the first mystery. Mm. You know, he's discovered something. We don't know what it is. And we this time we're actually in G major. 
um, is the key of it. So we've moved away from C sharp. We're actually uh, once again a tritone away from where we started. Yeah, so now we're in G. Oh, instant Blade Runner. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, this particular one, we, we only get a little bit of the melody and uh, then it sort of just, you know, washes around for a bunch of time. So here it is. So we get the tiniest bit of, I guess, addition to that melody. Mm. Um, so, you know, we've got the mystery deepening as he sort of realises what, what he has found or he doesn't know but he knows he's found something important. We get that big drone note comes in and this melody is sort of played in the middle of the register. Mm. It's sort of not piercing. It's the beginning of something, I think. Now, moving on, later we have a, a track called Memory. And this is sort of uh, around the time that Kay is sort of having a whole bunch of different memories. And we get it in G major again. But this time we, we sort of have some of the melody notes just slightly different. It's almost like it could have been improvising, it could have been on purpose. But I always feel that this could be a, a situation where those memories are, you know, they're slightly altered. Um, I think it's interesting because this is where his um, what's her name? Uh, I want to say Claire Underwood. <laughs> um, oh, you mean Madam? Um, sorry, Madam. That's yeah, her yeah, name. Yeah. Yes, um, yeah. she kind of asks him to recall a memory, and he's very hesitant to. Yeah. And I wonder if sort of the the fact that she's sort of forcing it out of him, uh, maybe makes it kind of end up being musically a bit jumbled. Yeah. Okay. Mm. Let's have a listen. You can hear how it, it's getting more synthy at that point as well. It's a little more, 
I don't know, it's less human perhaps? I'm not sure mm-hmm. what you would call it. Do you guys also think that the way these melodies sort of move between notes so slowly, it sort of it really mirrors the way kind of like when your brain is confused, you don't have a real good sense of clarity. You really kind of like, if something really puzzles you, mm. you know, you kind of stop, you kind of look to the side or down at your shoes and you kind of you know, turn your face up a bit mm. as if you're really trying to struggle to work it out. Yeah, and yeah. It, it, it almost feels like someone sat down at the synth. They're like, all right, what can I kind of play? And they're kind of, it's almost like Wolfish. He's like trying to find the melody every time as he's playing it in, in real time. Mm. And I think that really helps to mirror how Kay is kind of feeling in all this. Yeah, yeah. I definitely buy that. But I think as well what the music does in both the original and this one is reflects the well the, the visual aesthetic but the landscape uh, of of the world. And, you know, what this music is doing and, and particularly its slowness, I think, uh, and sparseness and, and the lack of clarity is, it, I mean, it, it's the immensity of the world. It's the kind of the sheer metropolis aspect of it, yeah. the, the science fiction aspect of it, the unknowableness of this universe that we found ourselves in. That's a good in. word because you, you could think that the immenseness of it could be represented by cacophony of yeah. music and, yeah. and fast frenetic stuff. Oh, my God, there's so much in this world. Mm. Yeah. But it's you're right, the, the unknowingness, mm. it's kind of like out of space. But yeah. he's also totally alone. Mm, I yeah. mean, Kay's only real friend, for want of a better term, is Joy, which we'll get to later. Sure, but, yeah. you know, he's totally alone amongst a you know, city of millions mm. and, and so on. He's always by himself. Mm. And, you know, th- this sort of melody feels like that. Um, later on within this same memory thing, we, we get a more overt sort of idea of those, um, those sort of memory notes, I guess, uh, being mixed up a bit. So it's no, it's not an overt melody, but all of those elements mm. are pinging away yeah. there. So it's like we've taken out, you know, a sort of a ten odd notes of a of a melody, mm. and they're all just going p p p d, you know, and they're all pinging around. It's such an interesting effect as well because your ear can definitely pick up the changes mm. kind of a little bit after they occur actually yeah, yeah, but I yeah. mean like Nick is the professional you know uh, sometime arranger I mean how would you transcribe that yeah <laughs> <laughs> <How> I, <laughs> yeah I mean look you don't get a sense of pulse or yeah. beat or even like where we are in the bar of music yeah uh, I mean I sort of even wonder if if Wolfish had a a specific grid of time in 4-4 four, four going one, two, three, yeah. four, one. I just feel like he's watching and just his hands are kind of feeling yeah. his way through the scene. Yeah, it certainly sounds like that mm. at least. Yeah. And I think it, it does make it that little bit more, uh, you know, unordered, a mm. little bit more chaotic. Mm. Um, when you're taking all of those elements that we've been sort of hit with so many times and you just lean the ping mm. throughout the, the whole film, actually, there's an awful lot of times that that happens mm. where you get those, those notes just pinging around the whole time which is why it's important that it's always in the same key because mm. as soon as they come in your ear pricks up to them yep. each time yep. so uh, speaking though of 
a um, of an example of this melody that comes in a different key. It's in the furnace scene. So this is when mm. Kay goes to that. I guess what is it? it's like a child labor yeah. camp or something where they're they're stripping parts out of electronics. Mm. Mm. And he heads down into the furnace trying to follow a memory that he has. And um, we get this sample. Uh, about the time, I think when it precisely when it comes in is under, after he unwraps the package and there's a, a horse in there. Mm. And it's at that moment, once again, the plot's moving forward. We've confirmed a memory that he has is real, mm. which is an important moment in uh, this. I actually found this bit really confronting in the film. I thought the sound was mixed and by the sound I mean the music, it was mixed so loudly mm. and it was almost annoying if it wasn't Gripping, yep. and it was re- it was really one of the moments in the film that really kind of grabbed me by the hair. Isn't it funny that he really is just walking down to an abandoned area, mm. and they call it the furnace, but you don't see anything really working down there. Yeah, and he opens up a cage, and there's a package there. Mm. It's like not that exciting, but with this <laughs> with this going on, it's yeah. like your heart's pounding. Yeah. And you're yeah. like, what's he going to find? And even though he just finds a little horse, it's like I, I remember my pulse sort of just going up. It can only be this music yeah. that is doing it. You know? Definitely. Yeah. Uh, look, you know, I mean, I think maybe the cinematography adds a sense of unease, but mm. certainly 10% of what the music adds yeah. to, to this scene and, and many others and many others. Yeah. Let's have a listen to it. I mean, the ultimate effect is is overwhelming. Yeah, really. I, I mean, it's like it reminds me of of it, you know Pendereski with with synths basically sure. but before the the melody comes in. I mean, that's the the vibe, really. Yeah, yeah, with the kind of chattering voices and it's it's. Yeah. Almost, I mean, it's not really even music. It's just a it's a sonic wash. Yeah, yeah. it's the closest thing to sound design of anything we've played mm. so far. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Well, I mean, let's discuss those elements. I mean, mm. you've got the you've got the chatting voices, which really does feel like there's a madness going on mm. yeah. um, like there's there's voices you know him doubting himself what's going on you know it feels like that could potentially be a little bit of the fact that the kids yeah. he's in a factory of kids as well yeah, I yeah. don't know but it, it, they've long since sort of moved on from that so maybe not but mm. you know you've got the you've got the chattering you then have the the bass notes that are just descending downwards mm. which is sort of obvious in that idea of sort of both moving down the stairs into the furnace and all that sort of that, that sense of dread mm. like you know mm. that pit of your stomach dread mm. but then juxtaposed by sort of other voices that are um, rising, you know, mm. going, Ooh, 
Mm. So you have this this um, you know contra contrary contrary motion, motion. contrary motion mm. going very on. musical yeah yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. so it's, yeah what are you talking about sound design here yeah. Nick this is <laughs> yes. this is uh, composition it's yeah. a bark bark exercise. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So, you know, there's an awful lot going on. And then, of course, uh, we don't get a proper drone. We don't get mm. that drone note in there that doesn't really have a, a bass. I, I actually feel that that makes it ungrounded. I mean, we talk yeah. about the bass note being the solid foundation of the city, of the things going on. This is the first time we don't get a drone note. It's almost bottomless. Yeah, And it makes, makes that melody, it doesn't kind of sit in a major chord. Because no. usually when the melody starts, it's a major third up. Yep. Um, from from the low drone note. So without it, we get no context of, of the key or the harmony. Yeah, and so it just sounds weird. And then he places it super high mm. on a synth. So once again, an artificial sort of sound and uh, really high piercing. And I mean, it really does feel like he's going crazy, Yeah, you know, at this point. Uh, and, and this is, is this the first moment when he starts, you know, they start having issues around his baseline testing and his, you know, yeah. then he starts really doubting what's going on? Exactly. Well, I mean, this is also the first moment, really, that he starts to think that he might not be who he think who he thinks he is. Yeah, um, which is you know about as confronting as the film can get. Really, yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. Mm. Now, there are actually a whole bunch of other times where this this melody comes in, but we're, to be honest, we're actually going to be repeating a lot of the same sort of idea, G major sounds, and so on. So when all these plot points move forward, but I thought we'd we'd race onto um, something towards the end in a cue that uh, that's why we believe, and it's when the the leader of the rebels, the lady with sort of the the right eye missing, uh, turns up towards the end and um, confronts Kay and talks to him about the rebel, um, you know, uprising mm. that is coming, mm. and um, lays the, the piece of information on him that uh, the, that she was there during the birth and that the birth of the child is a girl. And um, the music does this. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> it does not. Um, that's one version of what it could be, but uh, let's listen to the version, the version that made it into the, uh, into the film.
so you know what's interesting about this, Nick, is that it's the first time that we get something that sounds like an organic instrument comes in. It's like a, it's sort of like a cello, I guess, yeah. with some processing on it. And I, I recheck the film, and the moment that that happens is when she starts talking about the fact that the replicants, you know, that the two of them have given birth, or at least one of them has given birth. Anyway, we don't we still don't know about Deckard, <laughs> and um, and the fact that then they start talking about more human than human, and you know, mm. giving birth and being able to sort of have offspring is mm. what is going to make them human. Mm. And as soon as they sort of talk about humanity and human. Human, um, you get the cello comes in. And mm. I wonder whether that sort of organic sound mixed with all of the artificial stuff is that sort of little hint of a sort of an actual, you know, this is a humanity element. And look, I, I get real big shades of Austin Wintory's Journey score mm. yeah. in this particular section, yeah, especially yeah, yeah. the latter, latter portions of that, whereas there's much, there's a more soulful kind of feel yeah, totally. about it. Well, that's interesting because I was going to say that. Uh, to me, this is the most Zimmer track that we've played so far. Oh, in right. That with it, the cello, yeah. Well, yeah. with the cello, but also the fact that the cello slides up to that note and then the bass line shifts up a, what is it, a minor third, I think, yeah. there as well. And, and it's interesting because the melody starts in G. But then the bass moves down to a C. And moves up, yeah, to mm. that minor third thing there. And, and to me, that little moment, that's very Man of Steel, actually, to me, I think. Yep. Um, I mean, it's a bit sort of his superhero work in general, but Man of Steel, I feel like there's a moment I just on the on the tip of my tongue or the tip of my ear. Maybe they perhaps. gave birth to Jarrell. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe. Uh, I love in Other the Score how we try to combine all films yeah, yeah, into yeah. the one universe. It's just one universe, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. That's two John Williams jokes in two minutes. Yeah, yeah. I know. Scold me now. Yeah. I, I figure that people, if they're annoyed by this, they would have tuned out by now. With yeah. a, You're going to get some Williams with Other the Score, yeah. let's be serious. Um, now, Nick, uh, we get a return... Um, for the second time, I think probably the only time from memory. I think it's the only other time it happens. Yeah, of those opening piano chords. Yeah, so, those puzzle chords. Yeah, so when um, the and I wish I remembered her name. They, I think they do say her name, but the the rebel leader mm. when she sort of reveals. Let's call her Ray. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when when she reveals um, that you know that it is a, a girl that was born and and so on, we get um, Kay suddenly starts thinking back on his memories, and we get this. Now we only get four chords, not the yeah. full six. So not the Nexus six, we get the Nexus four. Is she a Nexus four, <laughs> Dan? Because if she is, that would make perfect sense. Well. Or is it because they only had four memories to go back to and therefore that's what we got? Uh, and and the, the character name, the rebel leader is Fraser, by the way. Oh, okay. Fraser, oh, well, it's, yeah, anyway. Mm. But 
I mean, look, I was thinking as well about the the echoes, the sort of backwards, forwards yeah, yeah, yeah. thing that you were talking about before. And look, I don't know for sure that this is how they achieved that effect. But if I was going to make something sound like that in the you know software that I use, it would be like a, a reverse reverb, yeah, basically. Reverse. Yeah, yeah. And and so I mean, I think that's interesting to think about in these circumstances and the ways it, you know when that effect is used is that it's these kind of backwards forwards <laughs> resuscitating the past by looking to the future sort of moment you know mm. and the music is exactly that in that it's you know the reverb it's an echo of what's already come but it's played backwards yeah 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 and so it's this kind of undoing of the future that we thought we would see yeah musically yeah. well that's yeah we talk about the four chords i wonder if um Let's get a little deep. Also, you know how they look at the DNA of the of the two male and female. Yeah, sure. Yep. You know, offspring. Yep. Um, is that DNA is made up of four acids? Oh, and, um, I was reading about this the other day, mm. and whether the four chords are sort of a reference to the Gattaca. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, like the you know, GAT. It's just like drilling into him. Well. It's not your DNA, it's someone mm. else's. Hey. Mm. Look, the more cool. outlandish yeah. <laughs> the, uh, the, the theory, the better, I say. Yeah. yeah. Maybe um, uh, Kay has four toes or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right in. Uh, after the score listens, write in with why there are only four chords uh, look, when K, K gets dealt the, 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 the Clearly, blow. K is the fourth letter of the alphabet if, if you miss some. <laughs> <laughs> well, clearly, Dan. Yeah. <laughs> it might have something to do with unicorns. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, four, so, four legs of the unicorn. Yeah, yeah well, four legs of the yeah, unicorn. There it is. There it is. Uh, now, Saya has been sitting very patiently um, <laughs> listening to us on this opening bit. Now it is time for Nick. What's it time for? It is time for synth talk with Saya. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, you've got your own bumper now, so that's bumper. great. Yeah, it's even Blade Runner themed. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> of course, people. If people don't know what that is, that's the little, the first little uh, piece of music that we get inside Vegas in that amazing sort of holographic fight scene. Hmm. Um, it's the first piece of music that comes out. So anyway, uh, Saya, uh, what can you tell us? We're, we're going to talk about the this this main theme that we've been listening to. We're going to sort of talk about how this was um, constructed. What can you tell us? So I guess I, I want to start off by saying that um, obviously the score was meant to be influenced by the Vangelis score um, and it was a little bit and um, what I've read about, which this is a story I absolutely love, is that we talked a lot in the first episode, the first Blade Runner podcast, about the fact that the CS80, the Yamaha CS80, was the star of the show. And story or legend has it that Hans Zimmer just happened to have one of these absolutely um, massive and expensive and volatile synthesizers in storage. And he just pulled it out of storage. And then how I imagine it <laughs> is that he pulled it out of storage, played those five chords, and then let Ben Wallfish to the rest. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure ex if that's exactly how it happened, but um, I like to imagine that that's how it happened. So yeah, um, he's got his um, he's got his cab out the front waiting to take him on tour. <laughs> yeah, he just smashes out those chords on the synth, and then it's like over to you, Ben. Yeah, <laughs> I, maybe he just wrote the four, and then maybe that's the four. Maybe he wrote those four, and then Ben was like, "Oh, it sounds a bit unfinished. I'll write another." <laughs> I don't know. Two, Who yeah. knows? Um, but. 
I, I guess that the bit of that story that doesn't quite make sense is the Yamaha CS80 is, uh, as we explained in the previous podcast, so incredibly volatile that it would not have even probably made any chords that made sense. It would have just sounded like a razor blade or something. So um, <laughs> they're, they're really quite moody synthesizers and they w- it would have had to have been tuned and, and all of that. So um but you know it's a it's a great story that he just got it out and played um so and i also love that he probably has one of every synthesizer anybody's ever wanted in storage to just grab out and start playing <laughs> um yeah. so yeah so i guess it is kind of slightly based on on the original score like we mentioned before as a classic drone uh, the bass, the high string sound, um, very broad brush strokes, no fast melodies, a lot of reverb, and then of course that um, great big descending pitch bend. So you can find pretty much all of those elements in this score as well, and particularly in the the opening piece that we we're just talking about, the um, twenty forty nine piece. So I've tried to recreate, uh, like I did in the first <laughs> episode. Mm-hmm this piece using some synthesizers that I have at home. So obviously I don't have all of the exact synthesizers. Um, My understanding is that uh, they use the CS80, but they also use some more contemporary synths. So they use the Prophet 12. I have a Prophet 8, which I used on this recreation. They also used um, Yuhi plugins, Zebra and Diva, um, which I'm not very familiar with. But yeah, like we said before, the whole thing is really intertwined into the sound design. Um, And something else that I read before was also that some of the, you know, the instruments that they did use, so they used an acoustic piano for some of the score that was really heavily processed using granular synthesis, um, which basically means that all of the sounds are broken into tiny parts, which are then like redistributed and to form new sounds, which I like to... I like to imagine it as being kind of like um, Mike TV from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory that he's just <laughs> made into granular pieces, <laughs> moved wow. into another room. <laughs> <laughs> Have you done that film yet? No. No. Oh, maybe Next we one. Should. Uh, I thought granular synthesis was when like plants turn sunlight into, into you know, leaves and stuff like that. Isn't that what that... That's photosynthesis. A similar oh. thing. <laughs> Yeah, Daniel, similar thing. You might be a doctor, Dan, yeah, but yeah. you're not a doctor of biology. Not of anything <laughs> factual. Yeah. Nor am I. <laughs> On a side note, I was uh, I was thinking before, maybe I shouldn't have said that I couldn't read or write music or sight read, but I read also that Vangelis could not read or write uh, sight read um, or write music. So, um, well, there you go. At least That's I'm why he was so grumpy. Good company. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Like what's going on? <laughs> what are these? What are these black dots on white paper? <laughs> <laughs> business. Um, so yes, you know that the score is uh, is similar to the old one, um, but also much more simplistic. Um, and yeah, I'd like to sort of go through one of the small part of 2049 um, that I've recreated. So the the first part is the the bass. So this is obviously um, very similar to the original score, has the constant bass drone through every song.
Now, Saya, I think you should test Dan on his knowledge of what's happening here because oh, we've, wow. we've done a couple of um, uh, synth <laughs> uh, episodes so far. So, Dan, um, yeah. actually, Saya, you should ask the questions of Dan of what <laughs> elements he was hearing in that bass note. Oh, my God. Uh, what, what are you hearing there, Dan? Uh, I'm hearing a low note. Oh my. <laughs> uh, uh, no, 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 I can do this. Was There, there was um, a sub oscillator. Yep. Is that what you, yep. Yep, so yes. that's a and really, really raspy, low frequency. And I think that's almost all I've got. No, it's because uh, um, the, the, it's, it's, it's not a pretty like sound to it. Is it, um, it's not a square wave. No, it's, is it sawtooth? Is that the thing? That's it. That so it's a sawtooth. Yeah. Um, it's a sub oscillator. So th- that's the thing that makes it sound really raspy. Um, mm. It also has a little bit of a, the filter opening and closing. So that's creating a bit of movement. Um, mm. And yeah, and then just drenched in reverb. <laughs> like every single yeah, the, part. The of reverb this. I, I could have got. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and Sayer, so is, is it also, is there like some kind of envelope opening that's allowing through, that's giving those swells? Yeah, so that's, yeah, that's what I was just saying. It's the filter opening and closing. Ah, oh, filter, so, sorry. Yeah, I mean that envelope. Yeah, you're, you're right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> so, Sayer, of course, we've got the, uh, the lead instruments on top. Yeah, so there's a couple of leads that I played on this. Um, So if you want to play the first one, we can go through it. So on this one, it's obviously like a very slow melodies, um, like we explained before. There's nothing really fast happening in in any of these scores, apart from some of, some really dramatic drum tracks. But as far as the leads go, they're all really low attack, which means you know they kind of glide into one another. They're of course the classic portamento, which is the notes going from one into one another pitch wise. And this particular bit I played on the CS70M, which is the synthesizer that was made just after the CS80, which you can get some those really beautiful violin-like sounds. And I think this particular melody is so creepy because of the intervals. Um, I don't know if, Nick, maybe you can explain why those intervals are so creepy. I think because they don't form a perfect sort of harmonic I mean, most of them are kind of tonal, but I think that if I just play that, you can feel that that top note isn't part of the chord. Mm. Sort of, yeah. It sort of sticks out. So it's a little journey and they're very close together. It's not a melody that you'd have big wide intervals singing. Da, 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 da. It sounds like a wail. Yeah, I mean, yeah. each of those, you've got four notes there. Each note, at least the first two notes are, are a half step away from each other, as close mm. as you can get in music. And then the second two are a half step away from each other. So they're, they're always sliding between two things. Uh, 
So it's these little mm. sort of tension release, tension release. And look, and, even if you played them in a really jovial, like if I played them with the same rhythm as the Indiana Jones theme, they're still actually hard to hard to latch onto a little bit. Yeah. That's a much more easier sort of the intervals there just sit better in the brain than mm. you know they're very they're very close together. Yeah. And totally takes advantage of the the portamento of the synthesizer, right? I mean, they're notes that are right next to each other that are built perfectly for sliding, right? That's right. Now, so we've well, got the second second voice that combines with the lead instrument here. Yeah, so this is makes it even more creepy sounding. So this is basically the lead played again with a one of the the voices is slightly detuned, which makes it sound thicker. And I think this also has a bit of chorus on it, so it makes it sound thicker times two. So play the lead two, you'll you'll notice it'll sound way bigger and way creepier than lead one on its own. Pretty creepy. Yeah. Mm, that's an incredible sound. <laughs> yeah. So I think um, there's a lot of that going on in this score and especially so much layering. Like, it, you know, it sounds like maybe uh, it was made by one or two synthesizers, but it's actually, I think, probably like more than 10 layers upon layers. So I wow. think that that makes it sound um, so much more kind of massive um, especially when you listen to it next to the sound design which is also sounding massive because everything is drenched in reverb um, you know I think it's just like a beautiful connection between the two um, so the next the next uh, bit is the strings so I, I just recorded some like kind of crappy sounding strings in my computer because I don't have uh, any real strings in my house <laughs> but um but I think it gives a good example of you know the the swell that can happen with a slightly um you know like a slightly acoustic element um and the swell also creates suspense um and I also put a little bit of cheesy percussion in fantastic I love that percussion. <laughs> it's right in the pocket <laughs> of <laughs> that sort of 80s vibe, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it made me laugh doing it. <laughs> <laughs> made well, us laugh listening to it. <laughs> in, in a good way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, now, Saya, so shall I press play on all of those elements together and we Let's can see how it. close you got to that main melody. Here it is. <laughs>
I liked your more overt fall yeah. in that. I'm not sure it, it quite ha- ever happens in that big... Mm. But yeah. you're probably more Van, Van Gellis than, than Ben Wolfish is. Yeah. Well, that yeah, goes yeah. without saying. But what, 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 I, what I did notice, though, while I was making it is it was so fun to, to just play with with so much feeling, you know, like, cause you're really just creating the sounds. You kind of, you're creating a soundscape rather than a song. And there's yeah. something really special about that. And also, you know, going through uh, the vast amount of sounds that you could put in. And I don't know, I just thought it was really exciting to, to make a soundscape. I think that's quite telling about the score. The fact that you, you can say that, just playing with these inorganic instruments um, can create so much feeling. You know? It was, it's, it was it's, really cool. It was really cool. I didn't think yeah. that I would have that reaction because I really, I loved recreating the Vangelis theme. You know, that I think that's like totally on my page. I, I love, I love all those sounds and I made all of it using my synth, uh, my CS70. And this one, I you know, I played a bit with computer sounds and I used the Prophet 8 and, you know, I really thought about what could layer the sounds into some, mm. making something special and something really fat sounding. Um, mm. And I thought that was, you know, that was really exciting. I'd never really done anything like that before. I Yeah, I mean, I think you've done an incredible job. I, I mean, yes, that sounds like a really fun afternoon to me. <laughs> <laughs> one one thing that I was wondering that's different about your recreations of the of the theme in this episode as, as opposed to the original theme in the first episode we did is I don't think there's any noise in this one. Is that right? And yeah, why I would that be? Um, well, I think that f- for me personally, I did try and put some noise in, but I think that the sawtooth drone... Um, was already sort of creating its own little loop of noise. Mm. Like I think mm. that it was already sounding really quite layered and quite quite, quite heavy. Um, mm. And so I ended up taking the noise out. And also I think because in the original theme, the noise kind of creates this like flying in the sky kind of, I don't know how to explain mm. it. I think it was it was like machines flying kind of hair dryery type sound, <laughs> you know, like that mm. spaceship sound. Well, whilst in this one, um, in this theme in particular, there's less of that. I think you, you said it before that it's, it's a more of a lonely um, kind of feeling and it's not like you're, it's not a busy trafficy sky of, mm. of spaceships. It's more like a someone trying to find a mystery out about themselves and and they're very isolated Mm. um do you think do you think the films like that do you think blade runner 2049 is a lonelier film than the original i definitely do i definitely do i think Mm. even the the landscapes are a lot more lonely i think in the Mm. the first one is a lot more crowded Mm. Um, yeah and there's maybe a bit more like introspective uh, there's a few more introspective moments in the new one and a lot more silence. Yeah. And I mean, I think, you know, I I was reflecting on this the other day that like, I mean, there's so few characters that are clearly human in 2049. Like it, uh, you know, it, there's huge stretches of the movie where you only see replicants or characters that are strongly implied to be replicants. Yeah. Uh, you know, which is 
pretty much the complete opposite to the first movie where, you know, you see mostly humans and then mm. occasionally replicant characters. And, and then occasionally you know, th- a unicorn. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, in 2049, it's occasionally a dog, which we don't even know if, there's, if uh, the dog's a replicant or not. Uh, um, yeah, yeah, I think that, yeah, maybe that's another element to this. Yeah. Yeah. I think, Saya, I think that brings us to the end of Synth Talk with Saya. <laughs> Oh, it works flawlessly. (laughs) (laughs) I love it, Nick. Okay, now just to – we're going to move away from that melody now. We've been talking about an awful lot. It is all throughout (laughs) the film. Oh, my Lord, comes in so often. But let's look at a a few of the other sort of um, key melodies, key themes that that do turn up, certainly a lot less but in key moments. And I thought we'd actually look at, I guess, this movie's version of a love theme, for want of a better term. Um, It's Joy's theme. And I guess that we could call it a, a love theme of sorts. Uh, it really sort of appears in two key places, and that is when there she's been given the sort of the portable um, holographic projector, and they're up on the rooftop, and it's raining up there, and we get sort of the beginning of her theme. But then it also happens uh, later in the film when um, she's trying to please Kay, and she sort of morphs into well, morphs over the top of the um what what is she she like a, a prostitute i guess um, sex worker yeah mm-hmm. and uh she sort of puts the hologram over the top of of her and we get this plane of her melody now once again it's in g major he loves his g major old ben wolfish <laughs> and it's a really simple melody it only contains a few notes it's from the major scale and uh let's take a listen So you know what I find interesting about this melody? So it's dun dun da da dun da 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 da. It's using almost exclusively perfect intervals, except for one note, which is a major third. And I wonder if that sort of works really beautifully for the idea of joy. I mean, she's the perfect companion. That's how she's marketed within the world of Blade Runner and from the Wallace Corporation. And she's perfect. She's happy. It's in a major key. And we don't get a lot of overtly major sounding melodies in this, even though the last one was major. It doesn't really sound like it. And yeah, it's perfect. You know, it goes to perfect fifth, then a perfect fourth, then the major third. Then we go to a perfect octave. So it's it's sort of her in a nutshell, really, isn't it? Absolutely. But don't you find that it by being that, it is kind of 
it's sort of the way it sounds. It feels quite hollow. Yeah, and yeah, think yeah. Of all the great love yeah. themes, you yeah. know, whether it's you know your John Williams or even the original Vangelis score, all that kind of those jazz chords that he used had a kind of a sort of a romantic, almost sexual tension in amongst them. Whereas this is just, it doesn't go anywhere. It no, doesn't, it does, mm. the harmony doesn't change. So it, it, yeah, it just feels really hollow and empty, which is sort of yeah. Uh, I mean, she's a hologram, isn't she? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, yeah. I mean, this is a major part of kind of the film's emotional payoff is that well, of Kay realizing that although he feels like he's had a meaningful relationship with this hologram, she is, of course, and he's known this, but he's kind of fooled himself into thinking it was yeah. something more that she is of course just created for precisely that purpose as as the kind of assassin uh, replicant says you know you're a satisfied customer you know of our of our product which is yep. joy you know it's not and, real love mm. yeah and even to the to the extent where he sees the giant ad for joy and she refers to him as joe which is the name that he had previously taken to be perhaps almost a uh, a, a kind of symbol of meaning of, of him having some kind of greater identity. Yeah, identity. Yeah. So yeah. definitely the relationship and its hollowness is a huge part of his journey. Yeah. I mean, there is a childlike element to it as well. Yeah. It's almost that mm-hmm. without it being the, um, the the toy box sound, it, it sort of has that element of a simple childlike innocence that, that she yeah. sort of has as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, it, look, it's a nice one and it does pop up um, a few times when, when Joy's around. Now, Nick, we have to get on to, I guess, the villain of this, <laughs> uh, of this picture and that is, of course, the music for Wallace. Yeah. Now, this is a really interesting feature of the score, probably the most unique in amongst the whole wash of sound that we get in this film. This one really takes the cake in terms of being a bit sort of different. And it's the music for Wallace, which is created basically by really low, deep throat singing. And throat singing is a style of singing that really not everyone can do. And it's, I actually don't even know technically how it's done, whether you need to be born with a specific throat anatomy I, or something you can learn. Yeah, but it's, I, I think you can learn it. I mean, it's really guttural from the base of your throat, but, uh, you know. I mean, look, let's do an exercise. First time in the other score. Let's all give our best sort of five-second attempt at low throat singing. <laughs> We're going to start with, um, with, with Andrew. Mm-hmm. Okay. Here we go. <laughs> Thank you. That's enough. Right. Yeah, that's yeah. Pretty Dan, good. Um, let's give us your oh, first uh, attempt. I, uh, so you've got to open your throat a lot more. I mean, this is this is ridiculous. But yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I'm not, I'm not okay, finished. Okay, okay, okay. Go on, go on, go on. Um, uh, Saya, your turn. <laughs> <laughs> okay, hello. Are you all right, Sam? I mean, that was the it? best attempt. No, no, no. There was like multiple tones in there. I, I buy that more than our pitiful rubbish. It's true. Uh, wait. Say a one-upping us again. <laughs> um, hey, I haven't had a go yet. Oh, okay. uh, well. Here we go. Here we go. Oh. <laughs> wow, that, that was... Just sounds like sick Wookiees. That was the best. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm convinced. You've missed your calling. Why are you a pianist? Well, anyway, the reason I'm doing this is to prove that actually I think it requires a special brand of human because <laughs> yeah. it's pretty incredible stuff. And look, let's, let's play the music that is used for Wallace and then we can talk about how it actually works with the character.
So yeah, it's a really creepy, low, deep, really interesting sound. And it's just a particular style of singing. I mean, it's it's very popular. <laughs> well, I should say popular. I think it sort of began in Mongolia. Yeah. Um, you often you know think of the, the the throat singing as being a cultural thing in Mongolia where they're just they're just specialists at it. Mm. But mm. I think look for the character. I mean, I always think of Neander Wallace being. I mean, he's the Tyrell of this particular yeah. film, but. Um, you know, he's got those creepy eyes and he's very godlike in yeah. his sort of dominating head of a conglomerate kind of way. And I just think it's the perfect sound for that for that kind of character. Mm. And like I'm not even sure I mean, Saya, do you reckon they've done some serious processing on those on those low deep coral chants? Yeah, I think they've absolutely been highly processed. Um, and I think um, Wallfish was actually quoted as saying that he talks about the choir being the starting point of something that could then be heavily saturated and processed through all kinds of different effects. And I guess there's also what I noticed then when I was listening to it, there's we talked about the lack of noise in this, the recreation that I made. This one is incredibly saturated with white noise and there's a lot of sort of chorus effect on the on the singing and the noise um, which I found really interesting mm. and I also feel that his like visually the whole Wallace Corporation headquarters it feels very otherworldly it doesn't really feel like it's a place on earth it sort of feels like you're back in Egypt in some yeah, weird right. yellow yeah. temple mm. that's just sort of super high tech but at the same time there's nothing there's nothing there. There's just corridors of yellow and bits mm. of water floating around. It's almost like a weird, creepy Egyptian spa retreat that Dan might have yeah. been to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no. To get his massages. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And drink his well, soup from memory. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Little tiny robot massages. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All that said, though, I think there's a real affinity between throat singing and the synths in the soundtrack because if you think of throat singing and the one thing that we haven't mentioned about throat singing before is that the crucial part of throat singing is not just that guttural sound but the way that a throat singer who can do it a hell of a lot better than we can positions their lips to create an overtone over the top of the guttural sound and and that can create basically harmony you can you can sing two notes at the same time which is ridiculous there's basically no other way you can do that as a human but you know, the way that it's used here, it's almost like that overtone, that second note is, uh, you know, that that kind of movement that you get in a synth, the oscillator, I guess, or, or <laughs> um, maybe I'm embarrassing myself, but you know you know that that kind of texture that you get over a note in the synth that we've been talking about. Yeah, like about. a filter or an envelope. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, opening, opening and closing, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, look, when you, when you think about harmonic throat singing, it's made by going... Yeah. I mean, I used to work with a lot of choirs where there have been pieces of music written specifically to have everyone in the choir doing that. And like Mm. we'd work for weeks getting like, you know, and then like one little kid up the back would be like, I can do it. Mm. You know, it's really actually quite (laughs) difficult. But when you get it, it it sounds amazing. Mm. And we were talking about keys before with all of those sort of main melodies mostly being in G major and Joy's, you know, um, melody being in G major. You can sort of argue that this world sort of lives in G major. Mm. However, Wallace is in C sharp. Mm. So he's a tritone away. He's about as far, well, he is musically as far removed from the rest of the film as he could possibly be. Mm. And you can see 
see that as a whole bunch of different ideas around that. The fact that he is a demigod, he's removed himself from mm. the, the rest of the population, mm. that he's the, the most evil character, I guess. Though I would argue, I mean, he saved humanity. I mean, that's the reason why, well, yeah. you know, like there was the, the blackout, you know, everyone's, mm. um, you know, losing their food supply. He discovers a way to feed the planet. Mm. He um, starts up the um, replicants again to be far, you know, less violent and mm. less problematic. Mm. You know, there is an element there of he's a savior. And I guess where that comes, you know, the best bad guys are, mm. the, are the gray area bad guys. I mean, yeah. he's a terrible person. <laughs> yeah. There is no doubt. Yeah. But... There are elements there that's not pure evil. You know, he has saved the planet Hmm. in a weird way. I just, you know, the one thing that I feel is missing from this is, I don't don't know if you've heard that the Wallace character was written to be played by David Bowie. (laughs) This is this is true. This is this is this is true. And so I really I'm missing an alternative version of this film where we get a, a Jareth like yeah. you know magic dance song for, yeah. for Wallace. Uh, <laughs> I think you know that would really just set this film together. Instead perfectly. of um instead of the little robots yeah. um flying around, he yeah. just has three balls that just spin yeah. around yeah. without him using his hand, just yeah. a little throwback. And he's there. wearing white, really creepily tight tights. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which still gives me nightmares from Labyrinth yeah. all these years later. I think he would have been fantastic as Wallace actually. But yeah. Um, <laughs> shall we actually hear some actual throat singing just yes. without all of the other synthy stuff on there? Here it is. Yeah, I mean, look, there's a lot of reverb on there. They're still processing, but at the same time, you know, there's it's a really yeah. it's sort of inhuman. I mean, it it reminds me um, mm. of the the Darth um, Plagueis uh, cue, and I guess the Snoke cue as yeah. well from um, yeah, yeah. from Star Wars. That idea of the really primal being, mm. um, the the sort of uh, in all of those situations, mastery over death, mm. which I guess this is this is the Wallace idea as well he has mastered in many ways um, life and death um, by being able to save and feed the planet Mm. by creating new life but Um, but not reproduction as he says he can't get them to yeah to birth or can he well mm. no well it wasn't him what really was it no i I think uh, he he mentions that that's Mm. like his final frontier yeah yeah Mm. why do you think these like mastermind characters who you know sort of at the top of the food chain Mm. always receive such like simple, I mean, you know, like kind of like one note, simple musical treatments. Yeah. Like know. Snoke, like Wallace. Look, uh, I, I, I know, that's it. I have an answer that I think is, well, it might not be a, a very satisfying answer, but I think it's actually because they're not very interesting characters. They are required by the plot because they are, you know, the man in the basement. They're the evil villain who represents kind of the abyss. And this music represents the abyss, but they they don't actually, you know, like Snoke. It, it sort of doesn't really matter what he does in Star Wars, mm. and, and and you know, it's more interesting to the second in command in those films, and the same in in the prequels. But yeah, it's sort of like yeah, I, I feel like maybe that's that's because musically it represents 
just the sheer darkness without texture. Yeah. I mean, even this film has a more interesting second in command. I mean, yeah. Love yeah. has more of a story arc to her. You know, she mm. does go through some questioning and some yeah. conflict yeah. Um, that she then, you know, comes out on the other side for better or worse. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, he really is the two-dimensional character. He yeah. doesn't change yeah. um, at all. And we only learn and a few things about him and that's it. Yeah, and, you know, if he did change, it wouldn't really make sense for the film. It's not necessarily a criticism of... No, of, no, no. It's just like that's the purpose. Is the the purpose is to be just pure evil. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Now, Nick, should we move on to um, another element of this score? This is actually really early on um, when Kay is. It's one of the first scenes. In fact, the first scene when Kay is flying to the LAPD in his spinner, and we get this this cue here. What do you want to tell us about this? Yeah, it's called Flight to LAPD, and we've been talking about this low choir stuff. There's a sound in here which to me sounds like a giant truck that kind of goes from one speaker to the other. And it's actually created by a sampled male choir. So I thought we'd play it just while we're talking about singing um, to hear sort of how inventive they've been with, you know, organic material and made it really synthetic. I mean, it almost sounds like a motorbike taking yeah, off. Yeah, I, I always feel like it's a motorbike. <laughs> but so that's a quiet. Apparently, yeah. A male quiet. Or bees. Well. Amazing. Could be bees. <laughs> bees. Yeah. Yeah. It's just bees pitched down. Well, there really is that, that scene with the bees, isn't there, where he turns yeah. up in the, um, in the I guess it's the desert that the is desert. swallowing yeah, Vegas. Vegas. Yeah. Um, that there's that beehive there. Mm. Yeah, maybe it's just yeah. the bees. Uh, I mean, it, it does feel like a, you know, a, a motorcycle. I mean, the spinners to me are a cross between two things. They're sort of a motorbike in their own weird way. They look like they've got those large single tires like a motorbike does. But then they're also like a helicopter. Um, they can hover around and, and so on. And this cue actually has those elements in it. Mm. So you've got the bump, 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 which yeah. sounds like, like blades, yeah, going blades um, yeah. yeah, spinning around above. And then you've got the, you know, above. Now that could, you could take that in this scene as coming from the spinner or from the world. I've mm. sort of felt like it's the world because he is doing this lovely um, traveling shot over the top of the city mm. and you get those sort of really motorbike sounds coming out of it that there's you know almost street races going on down beneath them mm. um but yeah just very cool and of course it's in an odd meter isn't it it's it's not just in four four yeah it feels like a sort of boom boom yeah it's just slightly off so yeah. it's not quite you know a really determined you know march in four or a driving sort of rock thing it's mm. um it's got this sort of little skip in it that once again i you know it makes it feel a little bit i don't know a little uns- certain like the mm. the machine itself is 
not struggling, yeah. but mm. you know, it gives it does it, a bit sound like machinery, kind yeah. of yeah, like mm. the cogs of the city kind of turning around. Yeah, and yeah, mm. and it's not it's not perfect, it's not ordered, you know, it's that mm. little bit off. Yeah, so it's sort of a really lovely use of both composition elements, sound mm. design, and importantly, this is the first cue that we've listened to that really has like a, a proper beat yeah. to it. You know, everything else has been sort of timeless, and I mean that in terms of not having a pulse, not having time mm. to it. Uh, this one really sort of you know thumps along, mm. and we don't get many cues like that. Like I think it takes to the very end of the film the, the massive and the fantastic seawall sequence um, that does have a bit of this kind of almost like yeah deep tribal percussion a bit going on, but then turns into a bit of sound design and um, yeah. Well, I mean we, we we could get to that really quickly. I mean the, the, it definitely uses that that kind of beat. It, it's I think we were saying before uh, we began that it's the first fight scene in the movie that's scored. The seawall bit is, yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Everything else has been without. I mean, unless you count the, the holographic thing where the Elvis jumps in and out as being scored, but I don't really because it's in, in I mean, world. it's an incredible use of, of music, mm. but, uh, but yeah, I mean, not original score, no. certainly. No, no. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, then the, the seawall, I mean, turns into this music, which I mean, well, let's, let's just hear a little bit of it now. I mean, it's the film at its loudest. Uh, yeah. That I think is is definitely not up for debate. It's it's so. I mean, it's just it's a lot. It's a lot of sound yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, on all frequencies, really being being pushed as as hard as it can go. Just so everyone knows, this is the sequence right at the end where um, Deckard is sort of strapped inside the the sh- what are they called spinners? Spinners. Yeah. How do you yeah. know they're called spinners? Do they ever say that? Well, you just Did say they in Uber the first geek. film. They say "get to your spinner" or something okay. like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Arnie has that line, doesn't he? Get to the spinner. Yeah, get to yeah. the spinner. Yeah, <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And the, and the, the seas all kind of crashing in, in the great fight scene between Love and yeah. and Kay. Mm. Um, I mean, look, an interesting story about this cue is that Wolfish originally wrote quite a um, you know a sort of percussion and driving almost like a typical stock mm. action scene and action music. And Denis Villeneuve apparently just said, look, it's not not quite working. And Hans, our good friend Hans came in um, <laughs> and I think a good example of a sort of music producer type role where he sort of said, look, just, you know, Ben, take away that bit, stretch this bit out. And uh, all of a sudden the cue sort of became this long drawn out kind of thing that we have now which still has a huge amount of intensity mm. uh, that works just perfectly well, with well, the crashing uh, waves and the water flowing everywhere I think it has more intensity I think if you added a, a regular action film beat behind that it would be less intense than mm. it is in the final film which is I mean it's re- it's almost unbearable 
yeah. the, the 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 music there. Yeah, I mean, let, let's let's think about the elements of it. You've got the the thump, which really does feel like the water just absolutely crashing up against the wall. Mm. You've got the the washing, literally since washing over you in intense ways, where the you know the 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 envelope, the filters are just opening and closing. It you know I talked about in the in the Van Gelis episode as being you know the floodgates opening mm. and closing, and this really is sort of that, that. sort of vibe. And then you have that melody. You know, that, that sort of uh, main melody that we've been talking about for most of this podcast. Yeah, Over it's the, the hey, there's some important stuff happening here melody uh, comes in and we get it really long and e- elongated over the top um, to sort of, I guess, centre everything. But, I mean, we were, t- we were also saying how often that melody didn't have a lot of noise. I mean, this is noise city. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's, I mean, you almost don't need the sound of waves. Yeah. You don't need anything almost from the, the set mm. on this particular cue because that, that um, and the composition at, has yeah. it all. It's not a car chase. There's no... They're not kind of driving through the streets at, at fast pace like, you know, like the dark night or something. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the vehicle is, is still. It's grounded there on, the, on, the, on the, the edge of the ocean there. And I wonder if that combined with, you know, when you think about waves, they don't, they don't come in really fast. They're, kind mm. of, they're quite gradual in the way they kind of lap, lap their way up to the shore. So I think those two elements, there's a lot of sort of stasis there and the music I think kind of mirrors... You know, the only thing that's moving lots are the other guys kind of biffing each other. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. And once again, it's that that juxtaposition, right? It's mm. the lots of action, you know, lots mm. of sort of fast, you know, hand combat mm. that you know juxtaposed with just the idea of the environment yeah. being unrelenting over the top yeah, and needing to survive it almost as much as the people around you. I mean, you know, eventually, he, I mean, he drowns love. Yeah, yeah. and yeah, isn't yeah. like, isn't it? Like it feels like he's drowning her for so long. Yeah, it's mm. just like he's just holding her head under there, mm. and I think the slow moving of the music is almost like her, you know, her screaming out slowly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It yeah. Really, really, all makes sense musically with what's happening. It's fantastic. Yeah. I think there's mm. also like a there's a big swelling of strings and the really long bass note as she dies. I think there's there's a certain mm. amount of um, something kind of really stops. Uh, when she dies, which is really interesting because I think a lot of the time there's a lot happening, but in this it's sort of like there's not very much happening and then there's less happening as she dies. Yeah, let's have a listen to it. It's funny when I when I was making my original notes when I was watching the film for that particular piece I just wrote swelling raises and for the flight to LAPD all I wrote was bees so I'm I'm bringing a lot to this podcast um, but I do really like I do really like the idea of swelling raises I do kind of think that that sums up this track 
It feels like my local beach, say, down in St Kilda. <laughs> <laughs> That's a local joke, folks. Yeah. Um, shall we? Shall we move on, Dan? There's a, I guess a, a part in this film that harks directly back yeah. to the original, and and that is, of course, the you know one of the final moments in both films. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, in a lot of these films, and I guess what I didn't say at, at the top of this is that I I think. Blade Runner twenty forty nine is a is an example of what I've been calling um, in in my Star Wars book, uh, not to cross promote too heavily, but this idea of the legacy film and, and Blade Runner twenty forty nine is definitely that to some degree, but also averts and changes that system. But you know what you get in all of these films, which are basically late continuations or even revivals of dormant franchises, is musical continuity. Not just in a orchestration sense or in a vibe or a mood sense, but literally using the same melodies or or building on them or you know developing them, including them in some way, and you don't really get that in Blade Runner up until this moment, where you have a note for note inclusion of not just the main theme for Blade Runner the original, but how it's used in the cue tears in rain in the original film. Mm. And uh, including the sort of complex key changes, well, not complex, including the key changes that mm. it goes through uh, in the same exact way. But I, I do have a, before we get into it, I do have a bone to pick. Pick that bone, Dan. Which is extremely pedantic, <laughs> but this, this makes me really irritated in ways that is absurd. The original cue is called Tears in Rain because yep. that's Roy Batty's speech. Yep. All these memories will be lost in time like tears in rain. Yes. There's a poeticness to mm. that, right? The cue, which, by the way, this scene isn't even in rain. <laughs> it's in snow. <laughs> it's in snow. Yeah, it's but a different they, state of water. Yes. They, they've corrected the poetic grammar. On the, on the album launch mm. release, it's called Tears in the Rain. <laughs> Why? How dare Why? they? Why? How very the dare they? <laughs> is it maybe the the is is added because um, it's not rain anymore? It's it's snow, and the. so the oh, the so use it's like of a sarcastic snow. the yeah, yeah. <laughs> tears in the rain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Quotation yeah. <laughs> Maybe it's to uh, to identify it as being different, so that they they get the ro- they get the royalties, and it yeah, doesn't yeah, go to Vangelis. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> it's just an elaborate actually, royalty I love scheme. that explanation, mate. That's actually that would be great if that was the case, but ah, oh, it just frustrates me. I don't know why. I love that it frustrates you, Dan. (laughs) So shall we listen to the track Tears in the Rain and uh, just remind ourselves of what we're talking about?
I think this is a, a good choice because there are so many similarities of this ending. You know, it's both times the replicants are sort of, I won't say sacrificing themselves because, I mean, uh, mm. K has been genuinely injured mm. <laughs> that mm. causes his death. But um, uh, there is a definite sort of overlap in they die for someone else to live. Yeah. Yep. You know, in many ways. And I think that's, that's a nice... Nice feature to highlight. And mm. Deckard is there each yep. time. I yep. mean, he's not quite there when mm. when Kay dies, but mm. he's sort of there to witness it each time in both versions of the film. Yeah, and it's also, I mean, they're both replicants, the characters that die, and mm. it's kind of their their moments of realising what it, what it means to have lived in their very specific sense. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. No, it's a nice. I mean, I think it's a, an effective moment. I mean, I, I'm surprised that that taking melodies from the original hasn't come up more often. Yeah. To be honest. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, this is a sort of an effective moment, especially if it's right at the end of the film. An awful lot has happened, mm. and just to give that little sort of shout back to the the original, I think mm. is nice. Yeah, when this happened, when I saw the film the film in the theater, I mean, I really sat up and listened. Mm. And, you know, it was a real moment where I was like, ah, oh, okay, here it is. Here it is. Why is it at this moment? What's yeah, going yeah, on? Yeah. yeah, really effective. Just before we go, I thought it'd be good to look at... There's one other cue which sounds a bit like Tears in Rain, which happens in the very middle of the film when they they go off to that sort of orphanage town and it's called Misa. And I, I want to play it because it actually only happens once in the film, but me and Dan were talking, we were talking earlier about how it actually feels like it almost could be the main theme of this film, mm. but it just appears once in isolation, which is a total Vangelis thing to do. Yeah, just yeah, have yeah. this great little musical idea that just plays once and once only. Yeah. But have a listen to the melody because Tears in Rain, when it goes like this. And this cue that we're about to play sounds like... So the similar chords, a similar kind of um, rhythmic idea of the melody, but it's a bit different. But especially listen to the lead instrument because it's total, it's total Blade Runner original. Again, like Van Gellis, all major chords. Mm. You know, I'm playing Chariots of Fire, but it just has that 
that sort of major major key DNA that gives you that rare glimpse of positivity in otherwise fairly kind of depressing film. Can't <laughs> you imagine that cue underscoring a like a best of package in slow motion <laughs> for the Olympics? Yeah. Don't you reckon? Yeah. Harsh, but yes. Yeah. <laughs> Harsh. No, yeah. no, no, no. I don't the mean that in the praise, Dan. Yeah, yeah. 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 I don't yeah. even mean that in a bad way. I mean mm. that it's sort of it's inspirational. Yeah. You know, it does feel like there's um, it's got that da 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 yeah, whatever it is. At certainly, the, end. the way it ends. Yeah, yeah is 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 it's a striving. Yeah, mm. it really is. Yeah, I think the way that it begins, especially with the descending melody. Yeah. Uh, is more melancholic to me. Yep, sure. But but that end, yeah, mm. yeah. I mean, that's about that's as positive as the music gets in the yeah. entire film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that particular sound is also a bit of a throwback to the original score because I think that's a very obviously uh, a CS eighty trumpet lead, and I think that's a lot of that kind of sound in the Vangela score. Yeah, I mean, this is this is the cool thing about this this whole score is that they really have taken boiled down the essence it's it's obvious that that wolfish has done his homework on the van geller score yeah. and he's really boiled down every single element that is um that makes that score the score and then taken those elements into his own one without having to copy anything that van geller did overtly mm. and mm. i think that's sort of smart i mean i'm I, i'm assuming that's what you know got the gig you know, for these guys, I'm assuming that's why the score remained on this on this movie because that's sort of what they were probably after. Um, it's important to leave that DNA in there, and the fact that you know we spoke about in that first um, that first episode that you know the score is the film, the film is the score, the world is the score. Mm. You can't do another Blade Runner movie without yeah. that vibe there. It just yeah. wouldn't be Blade Runner anymore. It wouldn't be that world. Yeah. So it's sort of interesting. Apparently, the score was was written. The twenty minutes of the film score was written within the first couple of days of being asked to do the score. So, mm. I think that's also a bit a big similarity between this film and the the Vangelis film uh, score is that they both, I think, sort of felt their way through it initially and then built upon that. You know, they they were sort of, yeah. I think a lot of it was improvised to begin with. Yeah. I mean, it's obvious that vibe is getting greenlit by the by the director, right? It's, yeah. It's like, yes, I like the vibe of this. Continue yeah. with more of that. Yeah. You know? <laughs> totally. Mm. Um, totally. Now, I mean, this score is sort of interesting for its its use of no score. Yeah. Really, there are so many moments within the Sayer that that you know has sort of no no underscoring during it. That's right. So I think that that's this is one of the things I noticed most about the film when I first watched it. Um, apart from the fact that the score and the sound design was interlinked. Ha. <laughs> interlinked. <laughs> interlinked. Interlinked within cells, interlinked. <laughs> <laughs> I noticed that there was a lot of silence um, and especially in the dramatic bits. So you'll find that, um, like we mentioned before, in the seawall scene um, and, and a lot of the fighting and the violent moments, there is either like very soft scores and very long brush strokes or there's silence which is really different. I think it's a really different way of looking at action in films. You know, I think that there, there was some good examples of silence that I noticed that five minutes before the first dialogue of the film, while he waits for the protein farmer, you know, in, that, in the house, music comes in only once he finds the flower under the tree. 
Um, so that there's silence all the way up to that. So I think it's the first five minutes of the film, there's no music. And of course it contains that huge fight scene as well. That's right. So that's a really interesting choice, I think, to make for a film uh, that's so, I don't know, like I think the especially the first film, I think you, you immediately notice the music of it, while this one, um, it's a bit of a slow build. Yeah, I mean, Denis Villeneuve as a director, I mean, his previous films are, are very sparse with music. And I mean, even going back to a film like Encendies, which I mentioned at the, the start of the podcast all those years ago. Um, and in 2010, <laughs> uh, in 2010, uh, this movie, um, he made it, and this is before his collaborations with Johan Johansson. But, he, you know, he says that he imagined that as a kind of silent film actually and was kind of talked out of it in the end but that film begins as well with a really interesting use of music and that it begins with a radiohead song and this this is a film that's set in the middle east and you know it's a kind of an unusual choice and he said that he wanted to use that piece deliberately to snap viewers out of what they might expect from a film set in the middle east basically Mm. and and deliberately used music in in that sense to to kind of draw people out of their expectations but a lot of that film is silent as is uh, you know a lot of sicario and 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 arrival actually as well so i i think in in some respects uh you know, the silence in Blade Runner 2049 is is really in keeping with Villeneuve as a director. Yeah, and I, I mm. think it adds to the loneliness. Mm. I mean, if you think about this Definitely score and does. even this story as being really lonely feeling, then I think those huge moments of silence mm. really does feel like Kay is by himself, yep. you know, the entire yeah. time. Yep. Now, of course, you know, there's a really effective part of silence in the film when they, they get over to the, you know, Vegas, to Las Vegas, mm. and it's all that orange and, and so on. He's creeping around and we don't hear anything um, at all. And the, the silence, I guess, is broken by Kay walking up to a piano and hitting this note. Now, what note is that, Nick? It's a D. It's a D. Now, I wondered whether it was D for decade. Yeah. What do you think? What do you think, Dan? (laughs) Well, I mean, look, can I just say actually as well that I think it's amazing that this whole film exists without spoiling the ambiguity as to whether Deckard's a replicant or not. Oh, it's pretty good that it does that, yeah. But if he is a replicant, then he's been built with perfect pitch. And so he's able to recognise the call of Of his note. Of his his, his note. Oh, that's a D. We better get there. And of course he has a, what does he have with him, Dan? A dog. A dog. D is for dog. Um, I've, I been, know I've got another theory, guys. <laughs> okay, okay. I reckon this bit was written by Hans Zimmer because it's in D. <laughs> wow. Uh. Wow, we, we suddenly got nasty on out of the score. No, it's a compliment. It's, compliment. it's his sonic signature. Yeah, it's it, his is. Sonic signature. it is. It is, yeah. Yeah, uh, anyway, so I thought that we would actually uh, segue into, see how, uh, very mm. flawless here, oh, Dan, oh, segue into the effortless. diegetic music within this also film. Also begins with a D. With D, D for diegetic. <laughs> this um, episode is brought to you by the letter D. Yeah. <laughs> Deckard's doggy diegetic. <laughs> <laughs> And the number 2049. Yeah. Um, Okay, so uh, I thought we'd look at a couple of of moments within this film where they use, um, you know, sort of score and other things within the film. It's called diegetic music, source music. It's coming from within the world. Mm. And just like in the first film, they actually use a lot of older music. 
Mm, um, like in the old, uh, in their first film, sorry, they're using this sort of 1920s, 1930s uh, yeah, music yeah. um, in, the, mm. in the cafes. Mm. And um, in this film, they use a whole bunch of sort of older, I guess there's some Elvis Presley in there, there's some Frank Sinatra in there. In fact, Kay is totally into Frank Sinatra. Mm. Um, it would seem that Deckard is, is totally into Elvis now. It could be because <laughs> he's in Vegas. But, you know, there's this old music, certainly old as far as the movie is concerned. It's, you know, over 100 years old. And, um, you know, you, you do wonder that in this future and, uh, whether musicians aren't making music anymore, whether people are just surviving yeah. and that they just have records of old music. Mm-hmm. It's sort of an interesting idea perhaps. But it, it, it is a way of juxtaposing, I think, with the with the score and within mm-hmm. the world. So a couple of little moments here. Now we are, um, we are in Vegas and we have probably one of the most visually breathtaking, I guess, concepts yeah. for, a, for a fight scene. And yeah. that's when they're in that hologram room and, you know, the, uh, well, say his little um, bumper theme song um, <laughs> happens where it, Nick, it comes out of nowhere. <laughs> just so, like that. Yeah, just like that. So, uh, yeah, and then you've got all those sort of flickering lights. Mm. And, and mm. what I even like about that is the sound design of you can hear the lamps opening, like they yeah. flicker, flicker, flicker. Yeah. It's, it, I mean, what a masterclass in, in visuals and, yeah. and sound and, and so on. Capital A for aesthetic, that scene. I mean, it's, yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, absolutely. Now, um, Elvis Presley comes on. As a, as a hologram. And we get um, him sort of glitching in and out. And he actually is singing Suspicious Minds, but he's not singing the, um, uh, the you know, the bit that everyone knows. He's actually singing from the bridge. So in a way, it doesn't knock you instantly out of the film because it is a part of Suspicious Minds that not as many people would be instantly familiar with. And when yeah. it's only on there for a few seconds, it sort of then flickers back out again. Um, but it, this is Suspicious Minds in case you don't know it. And so the bit that we get is um, later on in the um, in the bridge, and we hear two lines from him before he sort of flickers out. And we get, oh, let our love survive, and then when honey, you know. And I sort of wonder whether there was some very purposeful mm. sort of choosing of that. So let our love survive. This whole part of the film is is exploring Deckard with the idea of Rachel yeah. and the fact that they were in love and, you know, what happened and, and she died and, and so on. So there's all these little allusions throughout all this scene to to sort of that idea. And then later on, we um, right towards the end and they've, you know, they've decided that, or at least Deckard has decided that he's not going to defeat Kay. He's punching him in the face and yep. Kay is just sort of staring him down. <laughs> and uh, we get the Elvis Presley song, can't help falling in love. Wise men say only fools rush in, but I can't help fall. So he says that, you know, I really love this song and I wonder whether he has literally been sitting in this Vegas mm. hotel listening 
to you know this holographic Elvis on repeat because he instantly calms down. And mm. you you know once again we think about the plot. He is well we don't really know what he is. Let's assume he's a human for the sake of this <laughs> argument, and that he has unintentionally fallen in love. He can't help falling in love with a replicant, with Rachel. Mm. And, you know, I wonder whether this song really sort of speaks to him in, you know, in the context of the film. So I think that's mm. a really interesting thing. Now, later on, when they finally get over it, they go back for a drink um, in the bar and there's sort of a whole bunch of uh, chat there. We get um, a moment where Kay walks up to the, uh, the jukebox, the holographic jukebox, and we get uh, Sinatra singing One For My Baby and One More For The Road. And the reason why I think this is sort of interesting is because there is a whole pile of lines within this song that really, if you read into it, and, and I'm definitely going to read into it, um, it, actually sort of mirror an awful lot of what is going on in the film. So if we look at the the lyrics for this, we have, it's a quarter to three, there's no one in the place except you and me. Mm. There's no one in this place except for Deckard and himself. So set him up, Joe. Now he calls himself Joe. Yeah. So there we go. Um, I got a little story I think you ought to know. We're drinking, my friend. That's exactly what they're doing in there and they are telling a story to the end of a brief episode. So they're talking about that brief episode that he had with Rachel and, you know, the concepts that are happening around there. So then later on, it's um, put another nickel in their machine. So that's exactly what he's done. I'm feeling so bad. Won't you make the music easy and sad? I could tell you a lot but you've got to be true to your code. So this idea of, you know, they are programmed a certain way and they do have to follow their programming. And, and this is where Kay is turning up and he's really struggling with the idea of do I need to bring Deckard in or do I not and, and what am I really doing and what's my purpose and so on. Yeah. So that's sort of really cool. And then later on, and Joe, you're getting anxious to close. Yep. He's absolutely <laughs> being anxious to sort of, you know, tidy things up there. Mm. Um, and a little later, but this torch that I found, it's got to be drowned or it soon might explode. Mm. Now, that's sort of interesting little line mm. there that he, you know, does he need to be killed? Does he yeah. need to be, you know, kept alive? What's the what's is the it, deal? Is it foregrounding of the wall experience? Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. So, I mean, what an amazing... I mean, this song, obviously, it's a Sinatra song. It's mm. It was not written... Mm. for this film in any way. But there are so <laughs> many lines that really, yeah. if you read into it a bit, are sort of mirroring, uh, mirroring the action. Well, look, I, yeah, I think I always get a bit worried when you start reading into lyrics, but I think that <laughs> actually this is, this is pretty convincing. I think we've done some far more... Uh, out there, longer bows analysis, yeah, than, than this. Johnny, I be think, good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> How dare you? Nick? Yeah, yeah. That was a great Back to the Future uh, bit of bit of analysis. But no, look, I think either they have stumbled across the most perfect song in the history of the universe, and it has been just the most incredible work of happenstance, mm. or they knew about this and they worked it in. Yeah. That could be a thing as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah the reverse engineered the, the song. Yeah, po yeah, possibly, yeah. Now, it, it does seem that Kay is a Sinatra fan. Yeah. <laughs> um, because back in his apartment, this is early in the film, when he first goes into his apartment and he's, we first meet Joy, he turns on, I guess, the, you know, the radio, for want of a better term, turns on the... <laughs> the, the wireless. The wireless. <laughs> yeah. And uh, this is what plays.
summer wind came blowing in from across the sea. It lingered there to touch your hair. Now, apart from being a Sinatra tune, and once again, I think that's purposely chosen for the idea that Kay's into Sinatra, mm. but it really sets up a 1950s vibe yeah. within his apartment. Mm. So he's had all of these terrible things happen to him. He's, you know, essentially been spat on as he sort of walks mm. um, and abused as he walks both to the LAPD and through his apartment building. And he walks in, turns this on, and instantly we're in a cliche 1950s Americana middle-class home. Mm. And in fact, the first time we hear Joy... She is sort of in the background, almost yeah. like she's in the kitchen, yeah. cooking him dinner. Mm. And then when she first appears, she's in like a 1950s housewife sort yeah, of get up. Yellow frock sort of mm. thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's it's sort of really cool that the the movie the movie sort of says, you know, he's really trying to imagine another life for himself yeah. in this moment. You know who's not a Sinatra fan? Who isn't? Well, Listeners of the Blade Runner 2049 soundtrack. One of oh, the really? things that I find really interesting is you know how on Spotify and all these, you know, streaming services they provide a kind of visual indication of what the what popularity each track has. Well, on the 2049 uh, album release that's on that's on Spotify, I mean most of the tracks are, you know, pretty up there. They've 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 got um, reasonably high listenable ratings, yes. right? And then as soon as it hits the first Sinatra track, it's like it barely even registers. Yep, I skip. reckon, yeah, ninety five, ninety nine percent of people who put this on are like, you know, they're like, oh, getting in the zone, bit of bit of Zimmer, bit of, you know, uh, synth intensity, mm. um, and then. Wait, wait, Frank Sinatra? What? What? Yeah, next? Yeah, yeah. Next track? Next track? <laughs> yeah. And I always just find, you know, it's sort of putting back together uh, the the kind of listening experience of what most people will have will have had while enjoying the the music mm. to this film, kind of fascinating. But Elvis not skipped. Oh, really? Well, not nearly to the same degree anyway. Yeah, that's yeah. interesting. Mm. I find that interesting. What kind of mood do you think someone would have to be in to put this soundtrack on to listen to? <laughs> Look, you're asking three soundtrack <laughs> geeks who I think can listen to the, the most horrifically dissonant works of, of cinema music and, and feel like it's a, a raindrop on, on the top of their, yeah. their heads. I think but. the answer, Sayer, is that you can be in any mood um, because all soundtracks always work in every yeah, situation. Yeah, yeah. 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 For, <laughs> anecdotally, I've heard from people who are not massive soundtrack nerds. Uh, what? If, you know, if they even exist. Yep. Uh, <laughs> That this is pretty good, like intense writing for a deadline, sort okay. of, you know, almost almost white noise. I mean, it's so it's so loud. Yeah, it's not an active listening soundtrack. You yeah. don't need to pay attention to it the way you would a you know a Williams score, for example. Yeah. Mm. It just sort yeah. of yeah washes over you like tears in the rain. <laughs> oh, <laughs> sacrilege! <laughs> Dan's temperature just rose yeah. by five degrees. Starting to twitch. Yeah. Uh, okay, now you you guys, you know how I love to sort of dig super mm, deep when mm. it comes to this stuff. Mm-hmm. Something actually jumped out at me instantly, and it's actually in this scene when they're in the apartment. Mm. And when um, Kay presents Joy with a an anniversary, in inverted commas, present, and it's the, there is a word for it, I'm not going to get it right, but it's the portable holographic projector thing. Mm. Emanator. And... 
Emanator, there it is. Thank you, sir. And when he goes to install the whole thing, he has to um, shut down Joy and then he has to boot her back up again. And um, it's an important little moment because there is some music that plays here and it really sort of it jumped out to me instantly mm. as being um, something of note. So let's. I've actually taken a the section out of the film itself and uh, have a listen. Now, Dan, I know you you know <laughs> classical music. Yeah. Do you know what that is? Yeah, it's Prokofiev's Peter and the Wolf. It is indeed Peter and the Wolf. Um, just so you can hear it in full context, uh, here's how it sounds. Now, um, Joy's um, shut down music is actually the end of that whole phrase. So if I just play from the beginning again. So when you boot her up, it's the beginning of Peter and Wolf. When you turn her off, it's the end of Peter and the Wolf. And very specifically, people may not be familiar with Peter and the Wolf. A lot of people sort of study this as in, in school. Um, it's one of the things that you, you'll often hear an orchestra play when you go there as a school group. But the way the, the, the composition works is that it is a very overt use of musical storytelling where every character has a very specific instrument and a very specific melody written for it. So, um, and it's really easy way to sort of talk to kids about how melodies can sort of paint pictures and tell stories and 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 do an, a lot for what we actually talk about in other scores this this character's melody turns up and then something happens within the story so uh, i started thinking to myself so this particular melody it's from peter and the wolf but it is specifically peter's melody mm. it's played on strings so peter in the film is a you know a young kid who goes out he's got a couple of animal friends he's trying to hunt for a wolf a whole bunch of things happen and the whole time i was thinking okay so joy's got this music associated with her she's a man she's actually peter <laughs> is that what you're saying well this is the thing i, I was racking my brain for a long time as to, well, how does Joy, why have they chosen this? This is such a specific, this is not something you just get out of the sample library or you just make up. Like mm. this is a very specific choice. And I was thinking, why is Joy like Peter? She's not really, you know, she's not out hunting anything. Mm. You know, mm. like I, I couldn't work it out. And I suddenly realized that it's not Joy's music at all. It's actually the Wallace Corporation. In the same way that when you boot up Windows... It has, you know, a little theme song. Yeah. <laughs> or, the Intel or, uh, logo. Oh, sorry, that's the Intel yeah, logo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds something like that. Yeah. Or, or the PlayStation 3 console when you turned it on, it was an orchestra tuning. Well, that's true. Mm. Yes, mm. yes, yes, yes. So I, I was like, oh, wait a minute. This is, this is a Wallace thing. 
Uh, and because, you know, the Wallace um, logo actually comes up mm. as they sort of power off and power on. And I'm like, oh, okay, now I can start to sort of build a narrative here. And so what I – let me lay this on you, Dan. So All I'm right. going to try and talk about the Go Peter and it. the Wolf story and how this could be sort of, you know, jimmied you, into the story. You're, you're one for one with your Sinatra lyric analysis. Thank Let's you. see if you can go I'm two ready. for two. I'm ready for two for two. Yep. Okay, so Peter, the young boy, is mm-hmm. actually Wallace. Mm-hmm. Is how he thinks about himself. And he's warned in the story, he's warned by a grandfather character. Now, we can think of that as Tyrell because really he's the grandfather of replicants and, you know, mm, Wallace sure. potentially. Like mm-hmm. um, and the grandfather warns Peter not to stray from the fence garden. Now, we can look at that as Tyrell saying how replicant technology should be used. So don't stray too far. Don't do this thing. It's maybe dangerous because the whole time the grandfather is worried that Peter is going to go after this wolf and get hurt. You know, mm-hmm. don't leave the don't leave the garden. So I guess we when we think about the wolf character, it's I guess in this context it's more of a rather than a direct character, the wolf could represent, I guess, replicants existing outside of their their programming. So they're dangerous. Mm. Um, there's wolves out there that we're a bit unsure of. That's why Tyrell is saying, you know, don't go out mm. and do this thing. Mm. Now Peter, of course, so Wallace, ignores this warning and goes exploring. You know, in other words, he starts experimenting um, <laughs> around this whole idea. And, and in the story, he encounters a cat and a duck. Now, I'm going to say that the duck is like a normal replicant. Okay. And also a bird. And the bird in this instance, I guess, is a human. Sure. Okay. Yep. Stay with me here. Uh, look, I'm staying. <laughs> so there's, in, the, in the story, there's this whole conversation between the duck and the bird about what makes a bird a bird. So he actually talks mm. to the duck and says that you're not really a, a real bird because you can't fly and you can't do all of these things. Now, that's a human saying to the replicant, yeah, okay. you're not really a real human because you, you don't have X, Y, Z. I'm more staying now. Okay. Yeah, okay, you're yeah. back on. Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. Back, yeah. So in other that. words, it's, it's what makes a real human a real human. Yeah. You know? Okay, on a supplementary visit outside of the garden, a wolf, uh, and so I guess the replicant with free will, we can think about it that way, does indeed appear and eats the duck. Mm. So we have a situation where the, the, um, the replicant with free will kills the more subservient replicant. Mm-hmm. It's getting complicated again. Uh, yep. <laughs> <laughs> Peter responds by capturing the wolf and with the aid of um, the bird, so with the aid of the humans, uh-huh. and then hunters, which we can think of as Blade Runners. Okay. Oh, I'm back on. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> um, who were pursuing the wolf, arrive to kill it. So the Blade Runners turn up to try and kill the thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, instead, Peter persuades them to harness the wolf and parade it through town. So the idea that, no, don't kill, that Blade Runners are there to wipe out all of the replicants. Mm. Don't kill the replicants. Actually, we can... You know, we can control them. So, you know, really at the end of the day, showing that the dangerous can be tamed without killing it. So the, the I guess this whole story is a parable of, of humans triumphing over nature, or in this case, Wallace triumphing over the uh, replicant technology and harnessing it for his own desired world domination. And he takes the known threat and proves it can be used for good, or at least that's what he believes in doing uh, by proving that replicants can reproduce and so on. So... I think it works. Two for two. What do you think, Nick? Uh, two, two for two. Two for two. For yes. Nick? Nick? <laughs> <laughs> I approve. In, Intel approved. <laughs> you, 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 you approve. It's a good Pentium 4 right there. <laughs> I, I think you're at one and a half out of, out oh, of two. Uh, I'll, I'll give you a half. I think there's, there's definitely resonances. I'm not sure they thought about it in that detail. No, I don't think so. I, I think Peter and the Wolf has got this incredible, almost strained naivety about yep. its melody. And, and for that 
respect, it works beautifully. Yep. And look, it has the extra bonus of, of being about animals, which have always been so key to the Blade Runner world of yep. also defining, you know, what what life is, I suppose. I mean, at the end of the day, the, the most telling thing is the idea that Peter wants to go out and, um, you know, essentially control an element yeah. of his world. There is a scene where an animal says that even though you're almost exactly like me, you're not actually a real yeah. bird. Yeah, that's, I think the, that's most the, the most convincing bit. part yeah. to yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, so, I mean, the fact that he's now made this his corporation's hmm. logo music, hmm. um, I mean, maybe by that time you don't have to pay royalties. Prokofiev <laughs> has been dead by a long time yeah, at that point. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I think it works and I I think they're, you know, it's not a mistake that mm. they put that in. No, there. no, no. Oh, definitely not. Definitely not. It's very deliberate, mm. yeah, for sure. So, guys, I think that that brings us to the end. Yeah. So, what, what do we think of the score? I, you know, on first listen, um, I didn't think it had a lot of meat on the bones, I must admit. Mm. And through sort of getting under the hood and really analysing it, it's, there's a lot of, joy to be found not joi there's a lot of joy to be found in this score a lot of you know secrets in this score that don't reveal themselves instantly yeah um it's almost on a micro level and, and probably this analysis has been more on a micro level than we have done in the past you know i'm talking about keys we're talking about single notes and what they're doing and that's i mean that in many ways is the hans zimmer mode as well as this idea of minimal um, composition where two notes can mean someone's melody or you know mm. a drone note can mean something else and so I think there's a lot of thought put in this I think they've taken all the elements of Vangelis all the successful elements brought them over to this score and made them their own I think that they've you know hidden all sorts of meaning within both the the score and also the diegetic music as well I think it's a very very well crafted um, you can, you know, argue all day long whether you think it's great as a soundtrack mm. um, that you just listen to on, you know, sure, on, on sure. headphones. Mm. Uh, because often people will react to a, a score in that way and say, "Well, you know, when I listen to it, I get a bit bored. It's a bit repetitive." But within the context mm. of this film, it is wildly successful. Yeah, and I think, you know, that it really helps make this film once again like the first film, what it is. You know, it's it's sort of the world again. Yeah. Dan, what do you think? Yes, I I agree. I agree. There is, I think, always going to be a part of me that is just really curious to know what Johan Johansson would have done. Oh, sure. And, like, I think it's a real pity. And I, I hope that someday, somehow, the music that he wrote for this film finds the light of day, mm. uh, which has been done in the past. Mm. Uh, but, you know we may may have to wait some time mm. but i yeah i think the music is really successful i think you know it, it the fact that it's less melodic i mean it reflects the changes in styles it reflects the changes in era of film composition yep but you know it also works for the film i think you know i th i i don't know where you would chuck huge melodies in the same way as you have in the original mm. so you know i think uh, yeah and I, I ultimately i agree that it's a very very thoughtful score yeah yeah yep i think you hit the nail on the head with that last point dan in that 35 years of filmmaking and film scoring styles and tastes you know have have gone by in the ensuing years and it's just a different people like more subtlety these days mm -hmm. um, from audiences to 
to filmmakers. They don't want to sort of smack you over the head with big, big melodies. So there's enough of the Vangelis nods whilst also being very, very of its time now. And we're also in a world where uh, sound design and composition are starting to blur regularly in films, not just with Hans Zimmer, but across all sorts of other composers are all moving into a way where yeah it's is it sound design is it is it composition you know and you you see those debates online all the time oh this is not really a you know this is not really a composition um which i think is actually a very interesting debate to have in general around music you know doesn't fit in the box of what we normally call such things say as a resident synth expert how Mm -hmm. do you how do you appreciate the two different scores Look, I think, to be honest, when, when you guys first asked me to do this, I I thought, what are we going to talk about? Like, the you know, the first time I I watched the film, I noticed the lack of, of music more than I noticed the music. And I think I always had in the back of my mind what would have it sounded like if Vangelis had done it. I mean, not that that was even a possibility. He was never considered for it, I don't think. But, you Too know, grumpy. Too grumpy. <laughs> Makes me anxious reading his interviews. That's how grumpy he is. Um, yeah, I think I it, I always wondered that because and and I think that's coming from a place of someone who really really loved the first score so much and um, you know for reasons that probably are a bit unique to to what I love in general in life. But now that you know now that especially after trying to recreate some of this score. I can see how well it works and how intricate and thoughtful the score is. And like Andrew said before, I think um, there's so much there's so much to, that that is so subtle that can be explored in it. Um, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be a massive, beautiful melodic orchestral score to be to be thoughtful and to be intricate. So um, yeah, I think I I ended up being a really big fan of this score. Look, I still don't really know when I would put it on in my everyday life, but <laughs> I... <laughs> but You'll find a time. Yeah, I will find a time. And Just ma- make sure and you I, don't skip the Sinatra. Yeah, I won't yeah. skip Sinatra. <laughs> <laughs> He's got to get paid too, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, I think that brings us to the end of our analysis of Blade Runner 2049. We hope you enjoyed yourself on this one. It was a long one. Um, and if you did, go ahead and press subscribe. Write us a review on iTunes. Hit them sweet five stars and uh, spread the word um, and you know get the word out there. So, until next time, I'm Andrew Pogson, and that's Dan Golding. I think we'll all agree that over these two episodes, we've definitely heard things that you wouldn't believe. Interlinked. Interlinked. And he's Nicholas Buck. Within cells interlinked. (laughs) (laughs) And a massive thank you as well to our wonderful guest, Saya Vogel. Cells. (laughs) And this was Art of the Score. (laughs) 